In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and ever into the ages of all ages, amen. Today is the third Sunday of Lent in which um, we are uh, um, uh, praying and celebrating uh, Jesus' teaching on the prodigal son. Um, And Jesus teaches um, this parable, and this parable is probably the most spoken about and the most taught about section of Jesus' teachings uh, in all the Gospels. Um, And uh, it's interesting, um, and I've mentioned this I think in previous years, that there's actually similar similar stories that exist um, in other major world religions. So um, in Buddhism, there's a similar story. It's quite different, but it bears some similarities of a father with two sons. In Islam, there's also a similar story of a father and two sons. Very different. Um, the character of the story and so on, and even the moral of them is different. But nonetheless, um, and so we have to ask ourselves, what is the Lord trying to say to us today? Um, since this, uh, you know, this, uh, this parable is a parable which is, um, so, uh, reveals so much of the gospel. Um, and there's so many different beautiful themes in it, themes of mercy and forgiveness and grace, the- themes of the, 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 the uh, overwhelming wickedness of self-justification um, and comparison. Um, and, and how before God, this is something so wicked. Between us, it's normal. Like we always compare ourselves to other people, right? But before God, it says it's, it's something like, like deeply like wicked. So, um, and, and all of these different, so we have to ask ourselves, what is God trying to say to us? Um, for the benefit of all, I'm just gonna give a very short synopsis of the parable. There's a father who has two sons and his younger son says to him, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of living under your roof. Dad, give me the portion of my inheritance which would fall to me when you go the way of the world. And I mean, that's very rude to say. It's like to say, him saying to his father, you're as good as dead to me. So um, all, your, all that's left that you're good for really is whatever I would inherit from you. So can you please give me my portion of the inheritance? And um, um, as you, you may or may not already know, the way the inheritance was divided at the time was that the... the uh, the, the, the birthright son would get a, a two port, double portion of the inheritance and all of the other sons would get uh, one portion of the, of the inheritance. And of course, the daughters got nothing or uh, actually there was something in, in, in the Levitical law where they made an amendment to that, that if a father only had daughters, he could apply, he would apply to the sons to the daughters, but in general, the daughters got nothing, right? Uh, and that was kind of how it was done at the time. So this father had two sons, and, the, and one of them is going to get a double portion. So what's left? Um, what's left then is that the, uh, uh, the inheritance would then get divided three ways. So the inheritance would get divided three ways, and the younger son would get a single portion, and presumably the older son would be the birthright son, although that was not always the case, and he would get a double portion. So he takes his third of the inheritance, and he runs off to a far country, and he wastes it in wasteful living. We never really know what that wasteful living is. The older son, when he's accusing the younger son, says he, that, uh, that he used it in, uh, w- wasted it with, uh, in, in luxurious living and with prostitutes. 
But we, never, we don't know that from the father and we don't know that from the younger son. We just know that from the older son. So he goes off. And then after a while, once he's broke, he realizes, what, what am I doing here? All of my father's servants have more than in, and enough to spare. And here I am fighting with swine, with pigs, uh, over the pods that they eat. This is ridiculous. What am I doing here? And he says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to my father and this is what I'm going to say. Um, and, he, and he puts together a speech where he tells his father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Just take me back in. Please, I'll do anything. And so on. In fact, last year during Holy Week, we, we discussed in great detail the, uh, the, the, um, this parable. And we, and, and, and we discussed in great detail what was involved in him going back. The fact that he sold, that he lost, that he squandered a third of his inheritance was a major, it was a catastrophe. It was a major disaster. You see, what was inherited from generation to generation was largely, it was largely land, not money. So how did this guy end up with money? If he was given a third of the land, that means he sold the land. Where did the land come from? Well, the land was the land that was promised to them by God. So the land was a gift to them by God. It's like God has given these people something and they hand it on very carefully from generation to generation and keep it and preserve it as the gift given to them by God. And then they just, this guy goes and just squanders it and he loses it, right? And then not only does he lose it, he loses it in wasteful living and he loses the money that was from the land Probably in a Gentile land. So basically, they, they, God took this land from Gentiles and gave it to the Jews. And this guy has taken the worth of this land and given it back to the Gentiles. So this was, he would be cursed in his town. He could never show his face in that town ever again. And if he did, there was a ritual that they had to do. We discussed this last year during Holy Week, but I'll just remind you. They would fill, they'd have to fill a, a clay pot with uh, uh, nuts and corn and they would burn it and it would have a horrible stench. It would smell terrible, right? And they would make him carry it all around town and they would all around town and they would call him cursed, cursed. And they had, they had a, a special word in, in Hebrew that they would say and I can't remember it right now, but it meant, basically it meant like the cursed one, the cursed one. And then they would smash the pot in the town square and they would evict him from the town for good and he could never return. That's what this guy was facing if he was going to go back. And I'm sorry to like belabor the point about all of this, but it wasn't a simple thing for him to go back. Some people make the argument that there's no evidence of any remorse in the younger son. In fact, maybe he's quite utilitarian. He puts together a good speech and he's kind of sick of fighting with pigs for food. And he says, you know what? Like my dad's a nice guy. He still likes me, I'm sure. Right? Let me, if I can just sweet talk him, I can get my foot back in the door. Absolutely not. Contextually, the people who are listening to this sermon, the people who are listening to Jesus talk, the Pharisees and scribes who in the beginning of the chapter were accusing him of eating with, with, with sinners. He's addressing this. Luke 15 is addressed to the Pharisees and scribes because he's answering them. He's answering their accusation that they didn't say to his face, of course, to Jesus' face. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And so he gives these three parables the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the father with two sons. 
In no way is it likely at all in the minds of the people listening to this parable that they thought that it was a simple thing for this young man to return to his father. And his father knew that. His father knew that the moment his son shows face in the town, he is doomed. I mean, he's, he, their family is shamed forever. Right? And they can't pick up and leave. Remember, they, 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 they're, they're tied to the land. Their inheritance is the land. So they can't just move to another town now that they are ashamed in this town. They're stuck there, right? And his, he knows his son cannot possibly come back to the town. So what does he do? He runs out and he goes to his son. He's sitting and looking on the horizon day in and day out. And when he sees his son coming on the horizon, he runs to him. He falls on his neck. He kisses him. Shared this also in previous years, but just to remind you, it was not a normal thing in their culture, in their time for old people to run. Like, if you wanted to talk to your dad in their time, you would go to him. He doesn't come to you. Right? I'm smiling because I'm wondering if I should say this or not. Early in my priesthood, you know, different people give you advice. So one of my mentors told me, look, every now and again, you get up and go to the bishop. And tell him, show him, tell him what you've been doing. Take pictures, whatever, and tell him the joyful things of your ministry. You go and share them with him. And I'm like, why? Why? Like, why? When it's a waste of time. Like, I, like, I don't care to impress anybody or whatever or anything, right? So Buddha was telling me this. tells me, look, I'm going to tell you something. When you call the bishop, it's good news. When the bishop calls you, it's bad news. <laughs> I realized this probably was, it was true of my entire professional life as well. You know, when you get an email from the CEO, right? Um, the likelihood that it's going to be not good is much higher than the likelihood that it is going to be good, right? But it's this concept that, that the, the, the lesser seeks the blessing of the greater. But here we see the opposite. We see the father. He's the patriarch of the family. He runs to his son. Something very unusual. And he blesses him. And we could go on and on about the blessing, how he blesses him. But let's just say it's absolutely extraordinary and nothing like one would have ever imagined. The older son sees this, hears about this from the servants and so on, and says, come on now. And we always like, like refer to this parable as the pro- parable of the prodigal son. But actually, the whole, the whole parable is about 22 verses 11 of which are about the younger son and 11 of which are about the older son, right? And the father appears in both. And what I really want us to focus on today is, is, is the, the father. And who is the father? And how has God, God called us to be like the father? And so the older son is, is indignant. He's, he, he, he's, he can't... He can't stand this. How can you possibly do this? Right? Everything says that, you know, this guy should be, we shouldn't even, he has shamed us. He has this, he has that. He has wasted your livelihood, Father, with harlots and and wasteful living and so on. 
And the father, what does the father do? The older son doesn't want to go into the party. What does the father do? He goes out to him. The same behavior. And he hears him out. And he never once tells him, shame on you. That younger brother is is your flesh and blood. Shame on you. When I go the way of the world, all you have left is him. You have to stand up for each other. You have to look out for each other. And even the whole world turns their back on him. You have to. And he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. He hears him out. He actually hears him out. He lets him say all that he has to say. He doesn't interrupt him. But then, gently and with love, he tells him, Come, come, let's go inside. Come now, let's go inside. For your brother was lost, is found, was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. So he hears him out, but he gently tries to correct him. The Lord Jesus Christ in his church today is calling us to be like the Father. To be like the Father with the people whom we know and to be like the Father with the people whom we don't know. To be like the Father with our friends and to be like the Father with our enemies. Like we pray in the liturgy of St. Cyril and we pray for those whom we know and those whom we do not know and, and those whom, who are friends and our neighbors and those who are our enemies that God may have mercy upon all of us. God is calling us to be like the Father, to cast our dignity aside a little bit, to cast our honor aside a little bit. How many times am I brought into some interpersonal conflict and the, the problem, the one thing preventing, the one thing preventing people from loving each other is their pride or their honor, their dignity. For what? For what? Life is short. Life is short. It's too short to to spend it in contention, to spend it fighting, to spend it away from each other. God has called us to peace and to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Why? Because He is the one who makes peace. The hallmark of God's presence is peace. The hallmark of the enemy is fear, terror, and division. You ever find that there is division and you can't trace its origin? You ever find that that you're parting ways with somebody and the reasoning for, for your parting ways with them is immaterial? Ask yourself if there's a spiritual cause for it. Ask yourself if there if there isn't something more to it than you had than you had imagined. Look, I, I'm not one, like you, you, a lot of you know me well and some of you don't, but I, I don't really follow the news and I don't really care about what's going on in the world too much. I have enough going on in my own life and in, in your lives and in the life of the church to care about than to care about the news. But with all that's going on now with COVID-19, I've, because of my previous medical background, the priests in the area kind of roped me into this. Um, and I've been thinking about it and praying about it a lot and writing statements and talking to government officials and all this kind of stuff all week. So by force of nature, it's been what I've been thinking about and it may be what you've been thinking about as well. And um, knowing and having the blessing of knowing a lot of people and listening to a lot of people and caring for a lot of people, I know that a lot of people here in the city struggle with anxiety and struggle with fear 
and, and, and I have my own struggles, so this isn't, you know, it's, it's, it's neither here nor there. But I, I'm asking you today, do you know somebody who is a bit more anxious than everybody else? Do you know somebody who is a bit more of a worrier than anybody else? Pick up the phone. Call them. Ask about them. Make sure they're okay. People are full out panicking. I was picking up my daughter from, from her nursery school and the director of the nursery school, like not one of the teachers, she was, she was shaking while she was talking to me. And I asked her, you know, you know, on a scale of one to 10, as things go on a good day, you know, how anxious would you say you are? She says, I'm a seven. She says, I wake up in the morning feeling the blood coursing through my veins, etc., etc. She says this to me, right? And I thought to myself, in that moment, I realized, oh my goodness, and what are you feeling right now? What are you feeling right now? And she went on to speak with me and so on, all, all about that. Look, folks, this is a time. This is a time not for fear. The spirit of our church, the spirit of the Coptic Orthodox Church was never a spirit of fear. The spirit of the Coptic Orthodox Church was a spirit that stares death in the face and says, I'm not going to change anything. The spirit of the Coptic, I'm not saying that we should throw all precaution to, to the wind and you know that we haven't done that already by all the precautionary measures we have taken. But I want to share with you something that one of the other fathers sent, which I found very inspiring. Pope Dionysius the Great was a, the patriarch of the Church of Alexandria around a quarter way through the millennium. He was... He was uh, on the throne in, in the 250s and he, 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 he died in the 260s. Pope Dionysius the Great was the first hierarch, the first bishop in the church universal, in the entire church to be named the Great. You know, Basil the Great, St. Cyril the Great. But the first one who ever received the subtitle the Great was Pope Dionysius. Why? Well, because he led the church at a time of war, of famine, of persecution, and then of a plague. Just four or six years into his papacy, there was a plague in Alexandria. Over 30,000 Copts died. The majority of those Copts died caring for the sick and the dying. So the church called all who were willing and all who were ready and all who were able and taught them rudimentary health care and rudimentary basic first aid skills and sent them into the streets to care for the sick and the dying. Knowing that the person who's sick and dying, that they're caring for, the person that they're burying, very soon they will be buried next to them. And they did it. And they did it with joy. And they did it with joy. And so the church called them martyrs. The church called them martyrs because they stared death in the face and they said, I'm going to love my fellow man regardless. I'm going to love my fellow man regardless. I'm not going to let death stop me from the commandment of Christ to love God and to love my neighbor. Now, please, I'm not suggesting that we all like go berserk and, you know, like, like, I'm not suggesting radicalism. I'm just 
trying to highlight the spirit of the church that we have inherited or that we have entered into. Whether you're born Coptic or whether, or whether you have chosen to join this church. This is the church that you have joined, chosen to join. This is the church that you were born into. This is what you've inherited. A church of courage. A church which stares death in the face, which stares a plague in the face, which stares persecution in the face, which stares war in the face, and says the commandments of Christ come first. Again, I'm not suggesting foolish behavior, but I'm suggesting that in a time like this, when fear seems to be prevailing in the hearts of many, that you and I would approach this a little bit differently. That you and, I would, you and I would approach this as people searching for those who are undertaken by fear. Those who are suffering. Who is the most vulnerable person that you know? Somebody elderly, somebody already anxious, someone sick, someone immune compromised, someone. Reach out to them. Check on them. See if they need anything. In the announcements after the liturgy, I'll share with you what we as a church want to do to help you to support to support the people in your environment. We've never been a church to hide behind closed doors, but rather a church which runs out, be it to the prodigal or be it to the elder son, to the unhappy and unloving great elder son, and runs out to him and seeks to minister to him in the way which is relevant to him. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. I have sinned. Forgive me, my fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. Please pray.